1: Hello, this is Larry Wessels, director of Christian Answers of Austin, Texas, Christian debater. Please check out our YouTube channel page, C Answers TV. That's C-A-N-S-W-E-R-S-T-V. Just type it into the YouTube search box, then click on one of our links for it. Our channel page features 19 playlists on all types of subjects, such as Jehovah's Witnesses with 17 videos. and By the way, these are videos we've produced ourselves. Mormonism, 14 videos. Seventh-day Adventism, 11 videos. Phony TV preachers and King James onlyites, 14 videos. Nation of Islam, black Muslims, this is of the Louis Farrakhan type, 20 videos. God-hating atheists, agnostics, and know-it-alls, 18 videos. Darwin's Metaphysical Evolution Religion, 17 videos, UFOs, Ghosts, Magic, Spiritual Warfare, 16 videos, Islam, such as Sunni Muslims, Shiite Muslims, Alawites, Sufis, 54 videos, Roman Catholicism, Idolatry and the Virgin Mary, 71 videos, Anti-Trinitarian such as the United Pentecostal Church and Church History. 36 videos, Antichrist cults, the New Age and world religions, 38 videos, Saved by Works, Baptism, Church of Christ, Campbellism, 69 videos, Hell, Lake of Fire, unpopular Bible doctrines, 19 videos, Predestination, Arminianism, and Calvinism, 54 videos, End Times, supernatural prophecies and tough Bible questions, 20 videos and others. Our videos are free to the viewing public. If you'd like to be immediately notified of our latest uploaded videos, then please subscribe to our See Answers TV YouTube channel. If you have an existing YouTube account, then simply click on the subscribe button At the top of our channel page, next to our ministry name, Christian Answers of Austin, Texas. If you don't have a YouTube account, then it is easy to set one up at no cost. Just search YouTube, then the YouTube opening page will appear, and to the left-hand side will be a blue button saying, Create Account. Click on that and follow the instructions. Hello, this is Larry Wessels, introducing the message you are about to hear. Since God's Word found in the Bible is timeless, it really doesn't matter what century persons may find themselves in. God and His Word changes not. Although the message you are about to hear was given over 30 years ago in our evangelism committee meeting, it is still just as appropriate now as it was then. The message is based on St. Paul's guide to evangelism, or as I like to call it, ultimate evangelism. In 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19-27, through which reads, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I become as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. You can cross-reference this to First Peter 3.15 and also Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Continuing, And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run, that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery should be a castaway, in the Greek, that word would be reprobate. This passage of scripture has been a great guide for my own evangelism ministry as we have strived to reach all men by all means, whether they be Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Agnostics, Atheists, Seventh-day Adventists, Church of Christ Campbellites, Roman Catholics, or whatever. Please listen now, as my pastor of 30 years, Jackson Boyette, gives a great message on biblical evangelism.
0: If you have Bibles with you, it would be good if we could turn to 1 Corinthians 9. This is going to be an exposition of 1 Corinthians 9, beginning with verse 15 and continuing through to verse 23. It's always important to set anything in context that we study specifically in the Scriptures, and this particular uh, series of verses comes in an unusual context because all of chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians has been discussing the problem of the individual's conscience and how there were certain weak Christians in Corinth who were uh, very uptight, as we might say in modern parlance, about eating any meat that had been sacrificed to an idol, or that had been had been involved in any way in uh, pagan sacrifices. And uh, without going into the historical background, the point is that uh, There were very arrogant Christians in Corinth who delighted in their liberty, who uh, thought that it was ridiculous for somebody to have qualms about that, just as some of us might think it's ridiculous for another Christian to have qualms about going to movies or qualms about drinking alcohol ever or qualms about uh, uh, doing something on uh, the Lord's Day on the Sabbath. Uh, we might uh, look down on other Christians for that and consider them to be weak and not really taking their full liberty in the Lord. And yet Paul said that uh, in taking that attitude that you make a stumbling block to those that are weak. And if you look at chapter 8, verse 9, he warns the Corinthians and says, but take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. And then he says in verse 12, But when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh. And how long? While the world standeth. Never, lest I make my brother to offend. And so when we have uh, a brother Christian who is under great conviction about eating pork, and he thinks that he should not, Uh, It is not our duty to say to him, well, you idiot, the dietary laws have passed away under the Mosaic Code and we're able to eat anything we want to. Here, join me in a hot dog. You know, we're not to do that at all. We are to simply uh, honor his scruples because to his own master he stands or falls. And it's true that uh, we can very gently teach him a better way But as far as eating pork in his presence and uh, becoming a stumbling block to him so that he won't listen to our message, Paul says that that's not walking in love. Now, what does all this have to do with evangelism? Well, when you get to chapter 9, the first thing that Paul says is, Am I not free? In other words, I ought to be the freest person in the world. I'm an apostle. That's the point. I ought to be the freest person in the world. I've seen Jesus, my Lord. I'm an apostle. And I have some rights, too. And then he goes on in chapter 9 to tell about the rights that he has laid down. So you see, the whole context is in laying down your rights for somebody else. That's the whole point of this discussion that Paul uses himself as an example of someone who has not exercised the rights that he has. And the right that he has not exercised is the right to uh, get his living by the gospel. He has worked wherever he's preached. He has been a tent maker. And as you read the uh, first Uh, 14 verses or 15 verses rather of uh, 1 Corinthians 9 you find that he argues that ministers of the gospel should be paid uh, by those who uh, uh, are ministered to. Uh, He says in verse 11, if we have sown unto you spiritual things is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? Uh, you, you You can never pay someone back adequately who has been a blessing to your soul. And then he says in verse 12, uh, we have not used this right. He says, if others be partakers of this right over you, are not we rather. Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. So he's saying that if he asked for money, or accepted money, he would be a stumbling block to some of the Corinthians. All of us have experience that when um, uh, we hear of ministers getting large gifts or uh, taking up a collection that's pretty large, you know, uh, we immediately become suspicious. And certainly we have a right to be about a lot of ministers who uh, can best be described as very greedy indeed. But the point is that uh, Paul realizes that his taking any money at all might be a stumbling block to somebody. For some reason, people just don't like the idea of ministers ever receiving any money. And uh, therefore, Paul says, that's a that's going to be a stumbling block, so I don't do it. Just as in ver- uh, chapter 8, uh, not eating meat sacrificed to idols would keep you from being a stumbling block to a... Uh, a fellow Christian. So, uh, let's get to our text today by looking at verse 14. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel, but I have used none of these things. Uh, the, uh, uh, that, that's his central point. So it all comes out of the context of the discussion in chapter 8. Now, when he gets to verse 15, he says, neither have I written these things that it should be so done unto me. In other words, I'm not asking for money now. I'm not, I'm not uh, complaining that I haven't received any money. I don't want any money. He says, for it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. What is his glorying? What is his boasting? Jesus Christ. Yes, he boasted in Jesus Christ. And, in this particular case, he was able to boast that he did not charge them in any way for preaching the gospel. Verse 18, What is my reward then, verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge. So, he is happy that he is able to make the gospel free Without charge. Now, why do people become ministers of the gospel? Well, first of all, it can have something to do with prestige. Um, Although there are many preachers who are looked down on and many preachers who offend people, uh, most uh, young men, when they go into the ministry, or many young men, I should say, not most, but many young men when they go into the ministry feel like that there is a certain amount of prestige that goes with the job. Uh, You're respected in the community, especially if you have uh, a good uh, ministerial education, um, an advanced degree. Uh, So often you're set up as a pillar of the community with... uh, Uh, a little manse and a a nice old church building and you become a solid citizen in whatever town you're in, perhaps you're a member of Rotary or the Lions Club and uh, you serve on various committees, you pray the invocations at baseball games and football games and uh, you are quite well known as uh, a pillar of the community and uh, one of the respected professional people so you can come to the pulpit for many reasons having to do with pride prestige and position some people think that ministers have a great deal of leisure time which is why I'm spending my Saturday morning here with you guys (laughs) rather than doing something else uh, ministers uh, do not have a great deal of leisure time as a matter of fact this is a myth and one of the uh, biggest problems that I have is being able to take charge of and to control the limited amount of time that is actually available to me and try in my own way to redeem the time because the days are evil but the idea of a minister uh... in the public mind is that he's someone who's looked up to he gets to wear a three-piece suit and drive around probably in an automobile that was given to him by a grateful church member who was led to the Lord under his ministry and who happens to be a Cadillac dealer he uh can wear a diamond ring that was given to him by another jeweler whom he led to the Lord, and uh, he is well-known in the community and well-respected and uh, has a lot of leisure time and gets a lot of money and a lot of tax breaks. Sounds like a pretty good position. If I could find such a position, I think I'd go after it. No, just, just kidding. Anyway, the point is that uh, there are ministers whose lifestyles are like this but so often these are the ones who don't make anybody mad. These are the ones who don't rock the boat. These are the ones who um, do not really challenge people to live for the Lord. It's it's very interesting. Um, There is a type of minister that people love to hear and he rants and he raves against sin And sin in the church, people go to such a minister and they'll think, Oh, good night, have we had a house cleaning today. He chastised us. He spanked us. We needed it. He took us to the woodshed. What a marvelous thing. And they'll think that that minister is wonderful. But let that minister really begin to go beyond all that and to preach the doctrines of grace. And to say you must repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you cannot because you are totally depraved. (laughs) Let him deny man's free will to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let him unequivocally proclaim that salvation is in the hands of a sovereign God. And suddenly that minister is no longer popular. He is going to always be a controversial figure and even the most successful reformed ministers in the eyes of the world as far as obtaining uh, earthly gain, like Charles Haddon Spurgeon, for example, who was probably the wealthiest Calvinist minister who ever lived and who gave most of his money away. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon was the most vilified, misunderstood, and insulted minister in all of England. Well, anyway, the point is that People go into the ministry for the wrong reasons, and they go into evangelism for the wrong reasons. And uh, I think that uh, it would be good if we were to uh, take a look at the message of the preacher, first of all, and turn back to Acts 20. verse 27 Paul was saying goodbye to the church at Ephesus and it was a very tearful parting and he said in verse 27 of Acts 20 I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God now I believe very strongly that people should not become ministers or even evangelists Uh, and I consider an evangelist to be a specialized form of a minister just like I consider a pastor to be a specialized form of a minister people should not become evangelists or ministers in general if they are not prepared to declare all the counsel of God. In other words You may come into your ministry not knowing all that the Bible says on any given subject, but I believe that when you first begin to believe that you have a call to preach, that one way you can test that call is to ask yourself, am I willing to declare the entire counsel of God? Am I willing to tell people the truth about such controversial subjects as divorce and remarriage? Am I willing to study the scriptures so I can find out um, where many of the popular errors are? And will I tell people about those errors? Can I give up some of the traditions of men if I don't find them in the scripture? Am I willing, like Martin Luther was, to let my conscience be taken captive by the Word of God alone, by Scripture alone? Because the whole counsel of God is what separates the men from the boys and the sheep from the goats, as far as ministers are concerned. I have listened to ministers who never mentioned anything about the Old Testament. They didn't understand what was going on in the Old Testament. It was just a closed book to them. I have uh, heard very few ministers who talked about the entire plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation. Very few ministers who had really thought their way through many of the difficult and controversial subjects. And so the question is, you know, are we prepared to declare to people the whole counsel of God? I furthermore think that the whole counsel of God, in many ways, can be summed up um, in the term Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because if you turn to 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2 You see well let's just start with verse 1 you see Paul saying to the Corinthians and I brethren when I came to you came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring unto you the testimony of god for I determined not to know anything among you save jesus christ and him crucified now we we have here what seems to be a a, a contradiction do we not First, there's Paul saying to some Ephesians that he was so happy that uh, he that he had not shunned to declare unto them the whole counsel of God. He said, I've preached everything I know about God to you. And then, to the Corinthians, he says, I didn't intend to preach anything to you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let me say to you this morning that it becomes pretty clear that the only way to reconcile these two differences is to say that Jesus Christ and Him crucified equals the whole counsel of God. But, that's got to mean something different than what we're used to. It must mean that everything in the Bible relates to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It means that when I read in the book of Genesis that God created the heaven and the earth, somehow that relates to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, how? Well, Jesus was the agent of creation. Uh, By him all things were made, and through him all things hold together. And eventually there will be a restoration of all things which he has made in Christ, according to Ephesians 1. Alright, if I read in the book of Genesis about the fall of man and his desperate uh, uh, descent into the depths of sin, I've got to realize that that's got something to do with Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That Jesus Christ paid the penalty for the sins of His people and can present them faultless before the Father. If I read in the Old Testament about the sacrificial system, I may go on for pages and pages and pages in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and it may seem to not have anything to do with my twentieth century life, and yet I've got to realize that that has something to do with Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If I read the words of the prophets, if I read on any scriptural subject, such as spiritual gifts, or divorce and remarriage, or church discipline, or husband's duty to wives, or parent's duty to children, or anything that I might uh, read for doctrine in scripture, I must realize that Jesus Christ and Him crucified is over all of that. And that it all somehow relates to the cross of Jesus Christ, to Jesus in his person and work. And so the the idea that you can just preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified and stick to simply the gospel, Jesus died for the sins of his people, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, and somehow that's only a small fraction of what the Bible teaches, and you only talk about the crucifixion and salvation, and you never talk about anything else in the Bible, that's that's a completely foreign idea to the Apostle Paul, you see, because Jesus is on every page of this book. And... Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, all of the villages in England are not connected to each other. There are some villages that you cannot get to from some other villages. But he said, you can get to London from all of them. All of them have a road to London. No matter how small or modest the little village is, it does have a road that will take you to London and no matter what text we're expounding in scripture, it does have a means of getting us to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So the point is Jesus Christ and Him crucified is at the center of the gospel and it is at the center of the whole counsel of God and so people who claim to be preaching Jesus Christ but they say, now I stay off of all the other subjects. I just preach the the main tenets of salvation, well, they're not true evangelists. They're not true ministers because they're not preaching the whole counsel of God. You are to preach the whole counsel of God. It's summed up in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, but every other subject that you can find in Scripture is related to that. So that's the message of of the preacher. And believe me, if you declare that message faithfully, putting the whole counsel of God into it, then you can imagine that you will not have a glamorous job. As a matter of fact, you'll be telling people that they're sinners and the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. There's no other Savior but Jesus Christ. They won't like that. Then you need to tell them that, uh, furthermore, Jesus... Uh, gives life to whomsoever he's pleased to give it. And that is from John 5.21, and you'll find there that Jesus is sovereign about who he gives life to, and they certainly won't like that. And then when you tell them that he demands their life and their soul and their all in in, in obedience to them because they're bought with the price of his blood, well, they're not going to like that either. And so the point is that you're not going to be a popular fellow if you really do preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified any more than the Apostle Paul was because you will find yourself declaring the whole counsel of God. That's the message of the preacher. That's the message of the minister. So your message is this entire book. But let me say to you that there are many who have read this book and missed Jesus. Don't read the book, Missing Jesus. The book testifies of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus on resurrection day? He met two of the apostles. They were cast down and upset because of the crucifixion. Jesus is apparent failure, and it says he opened unto them the scriptures, and he showed them all the things in Moses and the prophets pertaining to himself. Why, there are professors at the old test of the old testament at my seminary who just would never admit that there's anything about Jesus Christ in those Old Testament books. The, you know that the, they're just human books that are talking about historical situations. And uh, when Isaiah talks about a servant, why well, he's not talking about Jesus. And when uh, he predicts a virgin. To give birth to a son, he's not talking about Jesus. You know th- that you can read the whole counsel of God right before your eyes for forty nine ninety five, bound in buckram leather, leather or you know, uh, uh, eel skin or something, and you can still miss the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the message: Jesus Christ and Him crucified, as it relates to the entire counsel of God. Secondly, the pressing of the preacher. I want to look, I want you to look at verse 16 of our text, uh, 1 Corinthians 9. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast about. I don't have anything to boast about, for necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. The importance of this verse cannot be overstated, and... For anyone who is drawn to any kind of um, public or private ministry which involves uh, speaking in the name of the Lord, if you're uh, drawn to evangelism or you're drawn to the ministry in general, let me say to you that you must be able to say, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. When I was asked several years ago uh, what, uh, why I felt I was called to the ministry, I wrote down on the form these words. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. I didn't quite get it right. I left out the is. I remember writing down, Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. But I uh, was thinking of this verse. Paul knew... That if he were not preaching the gospel, he was being disobedient. He had something in him gnawing at him. He could not not preach. He refused to be disobedient because God was constantly eating at him, and he knew that he would be um, an unprofitable and disobedient servant if he refused, his calling that would be the woe. he would stand before god his works would be wood hay and stubble instead of gold silver and precious stones because he had been disobedient to god's clear calling to him and so every minister of the gospel has to have this burning desire and and if you don't you will cease to be a minister of the gospel because there will be times when you will think this job is too difficult or there will be times when you will see the failure and the sin and the disobedience in your own life as I have and you will think I I'm, I'm a disgrace to the ministry and I need to go ahead and get out of it and there will be times when you will either be in such great despair or such discouragement that you will need to have this in the back of your mind so that when you are on the verge of giving up you will hear again this voice saying but i can't woe is unto me if i preach not the gospel woe is unto me if i preach not the gospel i have got to go on and preach that is what i am called to do every minister must be able to to affirm the last half of 16b. If not, he should not be in the ministry. Spurgeon said if you can do anything else, do it. But if you can stay out of the ministry, stay out of the ministry. And why, of course? Well, the Lord doesn't want ministers who can stay out. He wants ministers who are so driven and so compelled as the Apostle Paul that they will stay in. Now I believe that 1 Corinthians 7, to which you need not turn, but 1 Corinthians 7 is very clear that people do have a ministry to their wives and to their families. And it would be a disgrace if we saved every soul on earth and counseled everyone who needed help and let our marriage go completely to hell this would be a disgrace and there have been some ministers who have done this i know of one minister in austin right now whose own son despises him and considers him to be a hypocrite and yet this man considers himself to be a, a great soul winner and he has left undone the right relationship with his son that he needs to have so the point is uh, that there are some concerns that we should have. One more passage with regard to this, and it's Jeremiah 20. I just want to show you this very briefly, this pressing of the minister of the minister that I call this uh, this subject. The minister is absolutely pressed and driven. Jeremiah says in verse 7 of chapter 20, O Lord, Thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out, I cried violence and spoil. That was his message, by the way. That was almost the sum total of his uh, preaching, violence and spoil. The Lord had called him to prophesy, that the southern kingdom of judah would be taken captivity by the babylonians and it was god's will and they just better get ready for god's wrath well that was jeremiah's message for most of his ministry we don't read of one single convert being one to the lord under jeremiah's ministry so don't be discouraged uh... jeremiah just simply was proclaiming uh, the whole council of god and The wrath of God is a very important part of the subject of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So there's Jeremiah crying violence and spoil. He says, The word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me and a derision daily. Then in verse 9 he says, Then I said, I will not make mention of Him nor speak any more in His name, but His word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. He could not hold it in because it was as a fire in his bones. Now, those who are really called to be ministers will know that feeling. This is part of the pressing of the preacher. Then, further, Paul talks about the reward of the preacher in Verse 17, he says, For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. In other words, if I woke up one day bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and thought, uh, I will go into the ministry. I will go to seminary for a while. I'm going to get me a neat little church in a quaint little town, and uh, I'm going to become a solid citizen of uh, such-and-such Texas. Or yes, telegraph. Or I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go to a seminary, and I'm going to get a very large church in a big urban area, and I'm going to become a well-respected man, and with money and influence and prestige. If you did that, you would have your reward. Verse 17. If I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. That's what Jesus said that people did when they gave their alms before men, very publicly, so people could uh, see every cohen they dropped into the collection plate and hear every clink. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. Well, Paul said that I have my reward if I do this thing willingly. But that's not how he became a minister. You'll recall that Paul did not grow up with a lifelong dream to become a minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> he grew up as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And when a strange new sect started preaching that Jesus was the Messiah and that he died on the cross and that he was living in heaven, Paul hated them and he was exceeding mad against them and persecuted them even into in, uh, strange cities. and. It was on his way to Damascus, of course, that God turned him around with a, uh, an appearance of the resurrected Jesus. And so, Paul says, if against my will, which is what it was, if against my will, uh, which is how he went into the ministry, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. In other words, a stewardship is committed unto me something's been entrusted to me verse 17 tells us that those of us who are ministers have a sacred trust those of us who are evangelists have a sacred trust we are entrusted with an administration of the gospel which is what the word dispensation means or stewardship we're entrusted with a stewardship that we are to take care of. Paul wrote to Timothy that he should guard the Gospel. Well, we are to represent God faithfully and accurately. We're to live holy lives for the praise of His glory. We are, we are given the honor of being His servants and His stewards and His agents here on the earth. And so that's Paul's reward And then he goes on to say, What is my reward then? Verily that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. And you see the point. He does this thing because he's a servant. He has to do it. His master wants him to do it. He doesn't even think of money when he does it. He's not a professional. He's not thinking of a one-to-one thing where he says I preach a sermon and get a hundred dollars and I preach another sermon and get a hundred dollars. He's not thinking in those terms at all. He's thinking of being obedient to God. And so he says that a stewardship of the gospel is committed unto me. I'm a man under authority. What is my reward? That I can preach for free. I have that satisfaction and I would ask you today, do you not realize that, that uh, your highest pay is sometimes to serve without pay? That's Paul's whole argument. He says, my highest pay is to serve without pay, that I can do it simply because it's right and it pleases God. Then turn to 2 Corinthians 6, Verse 3, Paul says that he gives no offense that the ministry be not blamed. That's what he desperately does not want to happen, that the ministry be not blamed. He says, But in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God, and look at what all he went through, in much patience and afflictions and necessities and distresses, in stripes and imprisonments and tumults and labors and watchings and fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, this is what got him through. By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich. And to sum it all up, he says, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Paul possesses all things because he is a minister. He possesses the riches that are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't want to charge people for preaching the gospel because his own unique ministry is that he must make it available for free that it not be a stumbling block. And so we come full circle to what I told you at the beginning. The big burden of the whole discussion is that he doesn't want anything he does to be a stumbling block to a weak Christian. He says, if I take money, that might be a stumbling block. My highest pay is that I'll do this without taking money and I'll lay down my rights. But then he goes on in verse 19. And he says, Though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto you, unto all rather, that I might gain the more. You see, he wants the gospel to go forth in great power. And he doesn't want anything to interfere with that. And he doesn't want people saying, oh, Paul's just doing it for the money. He doesn't want that charge laid against him. Yet he is free from all men. But he's laying down his rights for others. He loves people. And so he says, Yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. Now look at the commitment that emerges in the verses before us, the, the, the verses that follow. As unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law is without law, not being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I have made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake. Not for money's sake, but for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. You see, these verses that we're going to consider now show us Paul's method. And they show us His commitment not only to the Lord Jesus Christ in doing everything he does for the gospel's sake, but they show us his commitment to other people. Now let me say to you that this is where evangelists fall short. They look on people as objects. They look on people as things. They look on people as things whose opinions need to be changed they almost look on people as machines that need repair and they are repairmen and so this is the thing that we have to guard against people are important and we as witnesses evangelists and ministers have got to be as committed to people as the Apostle Paul was in other words, if you're going to meet with a Seventh-day Adventist, are you willing not to eat pork chops in his presence? You know, Are you willing to, uh, to not put a stumbling block in the way of a Mormon by offering him a cup of coffee or drinking coffee in his presence? You see, the point is that uh, our our Mormon friends, they're certainly not brethren, but our our Mormon friends have some pretty good ideas about nutrition. Now, they do them for the wrong reason. But the point is that they're going to look down on you, and that's going to be a stumbling block if you flaunt your liberty. Sure, you've got the liberty to drink coffee. But do you care enough about offending them so that you're not just there to win another notch on your Bible? you really care about ministering to these people? You see, I'm convinced that if all ministers put these verses that I just read, these five verses from 19 to 23, into practice, that the need for all kinds of programs and methods of evangelism would vanish. You see, we want to know the method. We say, well, give me two questions to ask people. Or, what do I say first when I go to somebody's apartment? Or, when I walk up to somebody on the street, how do I begin? Do I say, sir, if you died tonight, do you know that you would go to heaven? Well, let me say to you, I don't know how you begin. And Scripture doesn't tell us how to begin because Scripture knows that every human being is different, every human being is unique. I was on the subway one time in New York City and a young boy came through and he slapped a tract in everybody's lap. He didn't look at anybody, he had his head down and he just doggedly went through the subway car and slapped a tract in everybody's lap, including mine, and went out the other door. Now, I admire his sand because that's a very dangerous thing to do. It's a dangerous thing to even move on a subway in New York City. And everybody sits there, you know, wondering, well, will I get mud today? And uh, for this kid to come through and slap a tract in everybody's lap was something. And so I admire his courage and I admire his commitment. But I thought after he did it. This is ultimately ineffective. For one thing, I'm a Christian. I'm a minister of the gospel. He didn't find out anything at all about my need. He just assumed I needed that particular tract. He did not try to accommodate his ministry in any way toward anyone on this subway. He just simply put one in everybody's lap. Well as i say that's better than nothing and if we must go door to door and we must ask a couple of pat questions so if you ask pat questions of somebody that you uh, call on well that's better than nothing but let me say to you that um, the passage before us the rest of this passage which deals with paul's method of evangelism Could really free us from uh, the slavery to programs, and it would make ourselves, and it would call on us to make ourselves slaves to people. And if there's any, if there's anything I want to get across today, it's that central point: may we be free from slavery to programs, and yet be slaves to people, because that's what Paul is saying here. Don't get under bondage to programs get under bondage to people. We have here uh, St. Paul's Four Spiritual Laws. You've all heard of the Four Spiritual Laws, (laughs) and uh, there's a set that was developed by Dr. Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, But Paul here has four spiritual headings And I don't think it is inappropriate at all to call them four spiritual laws because uh, they summarize his whole argument here and they're laid out in the second half of verse 22. So we'll start with verse 22 and we'll go up and down the passage. Verse 22 says, To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Let me call your attention to these four phrases. All things, all men, all means, and some. First of all, there is a law about all things. When Paul says he has become all things to all men, he means what he says in verse 19. He says, I've made myself a servant to all men that I might gain the more. He's free, but he's put himself under bondage. Well, he's just a model for who? Who did that first of all? The Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 says that he put aside the prerogatives of heaven and he made himself of no reputation and and uh, uh, was made in the likeness of men and being... Found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and was obedient even unto death, the death of the cross. Jesus said to his disciples, I am among you as one that serveth. And so Paul, being completely independent of men, being the thirteenth apostle, and under no obligation to conform his conduct to their opinions at all, makes himself their slave. He does it willingly. And here's the reason, in verse 19, that he might gain the more. So he becomes all things. Martin Luther said, A Christian man is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian man is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Now, you know, Paul is uh, uh, was somebody who didn't have to step aside for anyone. He did not have to modify his behavior for anybody. And certainly, we have all known preachers who have the attitude, well, if you don't like the way I am, you can just leave. You can like it or lump it. I don't have to have anything to do with you. I am the way I am, period. But Paul was very accommodating in the things that were not essential. I want to read verse 20 to you in the Uh, New International Version of the Bible. He says, To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. The reason I read it in the NIV is because there's a phrase that dropped out of the Textus Receptus from which the King James was translated, and it is the phrase, Though I myself am not under the law. And you find this in most modern translations. And it's a good addition, because Paul was not himself under the law and yet he accommodated himself to different kinds of people. He did things with the Jews. He ate certain foods with them. He put up with some of their scruples. He did not correct them on everything he disagreed with. And when he went to the Gentiles, he behaved in a different way. And it was the same with weak Christians. So one day he might be with the Jews refusing to eat pork and the next day he might be with the gentiles eating pork and the day after that he might be with weak christians refusing to eat meat sacrificed to idols and yet knowing perfectly well that he had the right to do so now the question arises is this behavior hypocrisy i mean is it hypocrisy if i go to dave schmidt's house and being of german extraction He believes that one can have a little wine occasionally. So I have a little wine with Dave Schmidt one day. But then the next day, someone comes to my house who's very opposed to alcoholic beverages, and I have a half-filled bottle of wine in my icebox, and I won't tell where the other half went, but there's half of there. And so I take that bottle of wine out, and I hide it in the pantry so that my weak Christian brother will not see that. Now, is it hypocritical for me to enjoy a glass of wine with Dave Schmidt one day and to hide the bottle of wine when my friend comes over the next? Well, the great scholars, Jerome and Augustine, got into a debate over this very question. In this very passage, they were talking about it. Is it hypocrisy? Jerome said it was. Augustine said it wasn't. Augustine said it is not hypocrisy because the Apostle never concealed the way of salvation in all his accommodation. He never gave the impression that anything that anyone did could put him right with God, except faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. So, in other words, the Apostle Paul was not giving the impression to the Jews that if we don't eat pork together, you'll be saved. He was not giving the impression to the Gentiles, if you eat pork, you will be saved. Just as with Dave Schmidt, if I, if I eat and drink with him and I give the impression that if we drink wine, that will lead us to God, and if I give the impression to the other man, if we don't drink wine, that will lead us to God, then I am a hypocrite. But Paul was not a hypocrite. He said... He never said that any of these things could put us right with God. He said that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but love, joy, peace, righteousness, uh, and and it was in the Holy Ghost. And so he, uh, he was not concealing the way of salvation in any of these accommodations. The reason that Paul is discussing these things, again, has to do with chapter 8, the pastoral problem to the weak. So, Paul has honorable motives for exercising his freedom and limiting it. He was free to say what he wanted, just like you are. He was free to eat what he wanted, just like you are. He was free to do what he wanted, just like you are. But he chose to limit his freedom so as to reach people. And to, and to commune with them if he could do it without sinning. You see, Paul had a high degree of toleration for things that were indifferent. In Acts 16, to which you need not turn, but I'll just tell you that in Acts 16, 1 through 3 we, hear, we read that Paul circumcised Timothy so that he would have credibility preaching the gospel. Timothy's father was a Gentile And so Paul actually had him circumcised. But in Galatians 2, he wouldn't circumcise Titus, and he was totally against circumcising Titus, because that situation would have been different. If he had circumcised Titus in Galatians 2, then that would have been admitting that a Gentile needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. And this Paul would never do. So He wanted Timothy to have credibility preaching the gospel. So he let him be circumcised, but he was not saying you must be circumcised to be saved. However, in the Galatian heresy, people were trying to get Gentiles to become Jews first in order to be saved, and therefore they had to be circumcised. And Paul said, no way. So it was a principle to be defended and not a thing indifferent. Let me say this. Charles Hodge wrote a statement about Paul. And I am so impressed with this statement and I would hope that it would be true of myself. And I hope it's true for all of you. He said, No one was more yielding in matters of indifference. No one was more unyielding in matters of principle. Think about that. It doesn't matter about the different modes of taking the Lord's Supper unless we get into some sort of theological question like our Roman Catholic friends where we think we're actually having some sort of transubstantiation, then it becomes a problem. But among Protestants, you know, where there are different ways of looking at the Lord's Supper, this is a thing indifferent. Where there are different ways of looking at baptism, even this is a thing indifferent. But when it comes to the gospel itself, When it comes to the way of salvation, are we saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone or not? Then is when we need to be unyielding. So, Hodge said of Paul, and I wish he could say it of me, that no one was more yielding in matters of indifference. No one was more unyielding in matters of principle. So what does it mean to be a good evangelist? Well, it means what's suggested by the term all things. You accommodate yourself to people. You relate to them insofar as you can. You talk about things that are interesting to them. You you really do consider them to be valuable people, potentially elect, flesh and blood people with cares and concerns, doubts and fears. You try to minister to them because you love them. And if you cannot love them, pray to love them. Because this is the the first point. I want to give you one caution here before I go on to the law about all men. And that is, don't think I'm saying that the end justifies the means. When Paul says, I become all things to all men, does that mean that he thinks, well, saving them is so important I'll do anything? Well, some of the cults have gotten into great error on this point. The children of God, for example. They have sort of temple prostitutes. The children of God have young ladies of the night who go out and they seduce young men with the uh, ostensible purpose of saving their souls. And so, I'm not saying that the end justifies the means. Look at verse 21. Paul says, to them that are without law, that's Gentiles, as without law, but Paul describes himself as being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ. In other words, we may not sin in order to win people. We may not lie. We may not cheat. We may not misrepresent. We are under Christ's law. And so, therefore, we cannot sin and violate any of the rules of God's holy law in order to bring people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is very important because recently I was in a very unpleasant position of having to talk to a minister friend of mine about his exaggerations. He exaggerated the numbers in attendance at his church. He exaggerated the extent of his ministry. He exaggerated things that he said. There's really no other way to describe it as other than lying. And we are not at liberty to do these things just because we want to win people. Uh, Turn that down now. I'm freezing. (laughs) Okay. Instead, we're to try to see things from others' point of view and present the message to them. I've told you many times, when you talk to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, remember that these people may have been in this all of their lives. And when you're what you're asking them to do is give up their families, face persecution and misunderstanding, maybe get fired from their jobs if they happen to work for other people in their cult. You know, you must have compassion on them. You must have concern for where the gospel will lead them to. And your desire must not simply be to win an argument, but to help these poor people understand that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life, and he demands that uh, that if any man come after him that he should deny himself, take up his cross and follow him. And taking up their cross may be much more difficult than it has been for us. Most of us have gone through some religious changes, but they have not been nearly as radical as what you may be asking cult members to go through. So love them. Think of them as human beings. Accommodate yourself to them without sinning. The second thing Paul says in these verses is a law about all men. And there are some ramifications of that. One is that the gospel call is universal. Jesus said, Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, to all nations. Jesus redeemed all kinds of people. The song of the Lamb in Revelation 5 tells us that He has redeemed men out of every uh, nation and tribe and tongue. And therefore, there will be people in Afghanistan that he's redeemed, people in India that he has redeemed, people in Finland that he's redeemed, people in Arkansas that he's redeemed. He has redeemed people from all over. And he is no respecter of persons. This is what poor bigoted Apostle Peter found out when he went to Cornelius' house. Oh, yes, God showed him the vision of the sheet, and he went to Cornelius' house, saw the Holy Spirit poured out on the Gentiles, and he said, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. The gospel call is universal. And remember in 1 Timothy 2, which we won't look at, but 1 Timothy 2 talks about praying for kings and those in authority. And the reason is that the apostle Paul says that God will have all men to be saved. Well, clearly, all are not going to be saved, so the only thing that that passage can possibly mean is that it's all types of men, all kinds of men, all categories, all classifications. There will be some kings in heaven. There are going to be all kinds of people in heaven. Maybe not many of some kinds, but there are going to be all kinds of people. And so the gospel call is universal. We have no right to try to figure out if somebody is one of the elect before we preach to them. That's hyper-Calvinism. We are to preach the gospel to all creatures. Furthermore, that means that no one is to be regarded as beyond hope and without worth. Everyone should be regarded as potentially one of the elect. Even, dare I say it, Madeleine Murray O'Hare. Who would have ever regarded Saul of Tarsus as potentially one of the elect? He was the great enemy of the church. He was acting like an antichrist. No one would have regarded him as potentially elect, and we should. but still we should regard every man, woman, and child as potentially one of the elect. We don't know, and the reason that we treat human beings well who are not Christians is that they're made in the image of God, and potentially one of the elect. The reason that we are against abortion is that this is life. These children are made in the image of God. It's a tarnished image, it's a shattered image to be sure, but they're still in the image of God and therefore it is very possible that they will be among the redeemed. So don't write anybody off and as you (coughs) treat people In this life, treat them as potentially among the elect. Now, the gospel call is universal. That means a second thing. Jews are called, Gentiles are called, and weak church members. And so Paul says that I became as a Jew in verse 20. In verse 21 he says I became as a Gentile to them that are without law. And then in verse 22, He says, to the weak became I as weak. I became as a weak Christian. I didn't eat pork around the weak Christians. I didn't eat uh, meat around the weak Christian if he only thought he could eat vegetables. I didn't eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols if he could not do that with a clear conscience. I became as weak, verse 22, that I might gain the weak. He's got this overarching thing that's more important than throwing his weight around and exercising his liberty. He does not say, I have rights to do whatever I want to. Jesus bought those rights and I will use them. Instead, he says, okay, I've got some weak Christians here or some Jews or some Gentiles that I've got to accommodate myself to because there is an overriding reason that's more important than my rights, and that is that I might gain the more for Jesus Christ. Then, the third spiritual law is all means. And, just as there are two meanings to our phrase by all means in English, there are two meanings to it in Greek. If I say by all means, I can mean all possible methods. And I believe that Paul used all possible methods, that I might by all means save some all possible lawful methods all possible methods that honor the Lord Jesus Christ the first one of course is the preaching of the gospel this is a primary method the spoken preaching of the gospel do you know that more people are brought in to the kingdom by hearing somebody witness or preach in person than they are by any other method Even reading the scriptures itself. The scriptures themselves. So the point is that we should you know, we should have a tract ministry, we should have a tape ministry. Above all we should witness and preach and share because all means should be employed. But then there's a second secondary meaning. If Dave Salcedo says, Jackson, do you want to get coffee? and I say by all means I don't mean that we're going to drive around all night looking for an open coffee shop and that we're going to go to any lengths possible to get a cup of coffee I simply mean assuredly so Dave you bet by all means let's go get a cup of coffee and that is the secondary meaning of the phrase not only in English but in Greek as well you see Paul had an assurance about his ministry. And I want you to have it too. Because it's not Paul that's going to save anybody. He says that I might by all all means uh, save some. But what he means is that I might assuredly save some. He knows that the Word is going to do its work. If you turn back to Chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, you see the, that great section about Paul and Apollos and the ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. That's how people believe, verse 5. Even as the, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. The Lord gives. I have planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. It's God that saves people. You know, the prophet Isaiah said, As the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven and returneth not thither but watereth the earth and maketh it bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please. Maybe not always what we please, but that which God pleases and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. Of course, that's Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. And the point is that the Word will do its work, and so assuredly some will be saved. How could we ever have any confidence if we didn't know that assuredly some would be saved? How could we ever have any confidence if we did not know that God would continue to save His elect people? Well the last spiritual law is summed up in one tiny word, "sum." And what I believe that that means is that Paul was no universalist. He didn't say all there. He didn't say that I might by all means save all men. He knew that Christ loved the church and those people shall be saved. Now, in many ways, this is an extension of what I just got through saying. But you know, Jesus, at a very discouraging point in His ministry where many were turning away from Him, said, All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me, and him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. Some will be saved we know who those will be from God's standpoint we know that they will be those whom he foreknew and those whom he therefore did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his dear son and those whom he did predestinate well It's those that he called, and those he called he also justified, and those he justified, those he also glorified. That's from God's standpoint who will be saved. But the answer from our side as evangelists and from man's side as the one in need of the gospel is simply this. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When we witness to someone, we must not say to them, well, you can do nothing to be saved. You must simply wait around to find out if you're elected or not. Or you must wait to be regenerated. Instead, we must say what Paul said to the Philippian jailer. He did not say, wait for regeneration. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's who will be saved. Those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? So the point is that Christ loved the church. He loved the many. He loved the sheep. He gave Himself for them. And whoever Jesus died for will be saved. And Paul can say with absolute assurance that some will be. But look at who's involved in saving them. Paul says, I, I. Now, it's true that these people will be saved. They cannot be anything but saved. It's all God's choice and God's work. But Paul says that I might by all means save some. You ask yourself, is that Reformed theology? (laughs) That Paul's saying, I might save them? Yes, it is, because Paul was the means that God used. I have a chair that I'm sitting in that is the means of God's holding me up. I have a coffee cup that Tom Gross has given me, which is the means of containing this coffee. We have a room that we're sitting in that is a means of housing us for this time together today. And when you came to the Lord, someone witnessed to you or preached to you, and he was the God-appointed means for the Holy Spirit to work in your life and open your heart. And Paul is saying that he will be the means that God uses to accomplish his mighty work of salvation. Those who caricature Calvinism and the Reformed faith cannot understand that God uses secondary causes. He uses His appointed means, His tools, His secondary causes to bring these events about. And they are human beings. They are us. Now, today, I've talked to you for nearly an hour and a half. And I haven't told you when to go witnessing. And I haven't told you how to start. And I haven't told you what to say to people. Haven't told you how to begin, I haven't told you what program to use. I wonder how many of you listening to me could turn around and tell me what you said the last time you witnessed to a person. I'm sure you remember some of it, but do you remember all of it? Do you remember how you started? Do you remember the cunning plan that you so carefully followed? Do you remember every argument that you so masterfully dredged up from your great fund of knowledge? No. Didn't the situation simply arise out of God's own timing? Didn't He bring you to somebody? Didn't He cross your path with somebody? Didn't He give you the words? Didn't He bring Scripture to your remembrance? Didn't He enable you to speak? God was there. That's the point. And He will always be there and praise Him for it because every situation is different. I don't talk to Dave Smith the same way I talk to Larry. I don't talk to Carol the same way I talk to Tom. I talk to each one as a very slightly different human being and I have differences in my approach and every situation is different. And so, there's no method that I can give to you that will cover all the bases and all the possibilities. Instead, we must remember to be all things to all men and use all means that we might save some. Let me just ask you in closing, can you commit yourselves to care for and relate to people as people and be all things to them? Can you make yourself a slave to them, as Paul did? Can you go away from here today saying, I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to be a slave. To all men. Do you see all men as potential Christians? Recognize your obligation to make the gospel known to them. We're commanded to preach the gospel to every creature. Everyone's supposed to hear it. Are you willing to use all means and go to all lengths in order to reach them, to hang in there with them, and to give them another tract or another book that might help them or another argument? Finally, are you convinced that God will save His people? Do you have that confidence that all that the Father has given Jesus will come to Him? You see, God is committed to that. And one of the things I want you to realize is that God is committed to saving you. Yes, I know you've sinned. Yes, I know you disappoint Him. Yes, I know that you're not what you should be. But I want you to know that God, the Jehovah God of Israel, the covenant God of national Israel and spiritual Israel who neither slumbers nor sleeps, that God who made the heaven and the earth is committed to saving you. And he's committed to saving his people. You must know that before you can have the confidence that you need. God's people shall be and must be saved. And I ask you finally, are you willing to be part of that? How could any of us have confidence in witnessing if we thought it all depended on us? And it probably wouldn't do any good anyway. We wouldn't have any confidence at all if we thought it depended on us. But you may have confidence. Some will be saved. Just like the third verse of There is a Fountain says, Dear dying Lamb, Thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. If you can follow these four spiritual headings, you may not want to call them laws, but these four spiritual headings, you're never going to have a problem with the time or the place or the message. May God grant that that's our job description in Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Father, thank You that we get to be here today with each other. And thank You, Lord God, for your wonderful word which frees us from so many of the burdensome things that men lay upon us and yet enables us to become committed to serving other people. Help us, Lord God, to see ourselves as those who have a stewardship of the gospel, as those who are called to be slaves to other people in order that we might gain them for you. Jesus, forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for our contentions. Forgive us, Lord God, for putting anything unlovely at all in the way of the glorious gospel of grace. Forgive us, Lord God, for being offensive and a stumbling block with any other message other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Lord, we realize that that message will always be a stumbling block. But may our manner never be May our attitude never be. May we instead love people and be committed to them and seek you for opportunities to witness to them and minister to them. Lord, help us to keep these things on our minds. Lord, we don't know how to witness. We don't have a formula. We don't have a method. But we believe that we have you And you have said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And every time we've witnessed, we have looked back and recognized that you were there, and you gave us the words. Now help us to not shrink back from the work you've called us to do, but to go forth in great confidence, knowing that some will be saved, and that we may well have a part in it. We pray, Lord God, your blessings on everyone here. Keep them under the blood. We pray that you would protect them. Keep them from sin. Keep them living for you. And help us, Lord God, to begin to see ourselves as committed to other people. And help us to willingly lay down our lives for their sake. That they might be saved. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
2: Charles Haddon Spurgeon, known as the Prince of Preachers and as one of the greatest evangelists of the 19th century, lives again in the hearts of God's people through his timeless sermons and books.
0: See the distinction between the righteous man who fears God and him that fears him not. Taking all for all, God's worst is better than the devil's best. And the portion of God's saints at the lowest ebb is better than the portion of
2: the wicked. Even when their joys are at the flood. Pilgrim Publications, Post Office Box 66, Pasadena, Texas, 77501, is the leading publisher of the works of C.H. Spurgeon in the world. Pilgrim Publications offers Spurgeon's works from all sizes, from the 57 volume Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit to Spurgeon's best selling book, All of Grace, to inexpensive single sermon pamphlets. Call Pilgrim Publications today at 713 477 477 or write Pilgrim Publications, Post Office Box 66, Pasadena, Texas, 77501. Christian Answers is on the cutting edge of Christian apologetics, that is, the defense and proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our director, Larry Wessels, receives many calls as a result of our ministry outreaches, such as television, radio, seminars, and personal witnessing. Here are but a few examples.
0: Larry, this is Audrey Kaufman. You came over and talked with my kids about being in the Jehovah's Witness religion. I just wanted to let you know that we did go to court and we did win our case and I do have the kids back with me now and I do want you to know and understand how much of a big part you played in that and I thank you and praise God that I came or you came into my life. Uh, Hi, Larry. I want to thank you for this uh, journal you're now putting out. It is first class right on and theologically sound, and that's coming from a Dallas Seminary graduate, (laughs) and thank you earlier for the material that you sent me, and also we want to contribute financially
2: too. For a free resource list, please write Christian Answers, Post Office Box 144441, Austin, Texas 78714. Have you ever encountered unwanted guests at your front door, such as salesmen of one type or another? Beware, the most dangerous salesmen that come to your door are the ones selling religion, such as the nice young men from the Mormon Church. Christian Answers offers an enlightening audio cassette series entitled Discussions with Mormon Missionaries. These discussions are with actual missionaries from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Just what do they believe?
1: Uh, we don't worship many gods. I don't I don't
2: understand how you guys think we worship many gods. Well we, that's the point. We worship God the Father. You don't, don't have to worship, worship. we don't many gods to be a polytheist, you have to just even acknowledge that more than one God exists at all. Well, that separates you from Christianity. No, because right. we believe we believe there is only one
1: God we have to worry about. That is God the Father. What about Jesus? I thought he was the one. He like, is a God, and he is
2: the mediator to God the Father. He's a representative. Jesus Christ is the representative for us okay. to God. See, because Jesus Christ created the world, he's the Father of the world. But he doesn't deserve any worship.
0: No, we don't. Ba- I do not pray to God the Father or to God the Son. You okay, don't. So he, I do not pray to Jesus Christ.
1: Jesus is not worthy of worship because of the Father.
0: Mm-hmm. Worthy of worship. What do you mean? You know bow down, worship yourself, praise you, Jesus. Lord I worship you, Jesus.
2: Hallelujah. Okay,
0: I, I I don't understand. I guess
2: how can I word this? God the Father is who we pray to.
1: So the the devil was a spirit just like all the rest of us. Exactly. So we're kinda like we're like brothers with the devil or something? Exactly. The devil is my brother.
0: Yeah. It's a bad way to look at it, but it's true.
1: You see, uh, now, God was the beginning, so all the other people that has been created were Spirit's brothers also, you might say.
0: Yep, that every person on the earth was in the pre-existence. And
1: so that would include, like, Jesus. Exactly. So, like, Jesus and the devil were brothers? So it it is kind of a bad way. Every once in a while you look at it and say... The devil's my brother, well, you know, it's kind of, I
0: know exactly because I did sometimes, I thought, oh, what a drag!" But you see, what really makes it bad is then, you know, the Lord has said that the devil can't tempt you more than you're able to bear. Mm-hmm. And that's a promise that's given to us, our Heavenly Father. Well, if that's true, it would only stand to reason that he if he is indeed our spiritual brother, if you think about it, he knows us really well.
2: Get the Christian Answers to the Mormons at your door with this six-tape audio series. Some of the tape titles include Mormon Beliefs and Changes, Marriage, Feelings, and Revelations, Book of Mormon Changes, Prophethood, and Works, The Godhead, Jesus and the Devil, and others. Be ready the next time. Unexpected guests arrive. Send your order to Christian Answers, Post Office Box 144441, Austin, Texas 78714, or call 512-218-8022. We hope you've enjoyed and benefited from the preceding message. Christian Answers has many more resources available, whether audio cassette, video, or written literature. For a free resource list, please write Christian Answers, Post Office Box 144441. Austin, Texas, 787-14 or call 218-8022. That's 512-218-8022. Remember, 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord, being ready always to give answer to every man that asketh you a reason concerning the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear. Check out our websites
0: biblequery.org this site answers 7,700 bible questions historycart.com this site reveals early church history and doctrine proving roman catholicism is not historically or doctrinally viable muslimhope.com this site is a classic refutation of islam a counterfeit religion created by muhammad free newsletters are also available
1: Hello, this is Larry Wessels, director of Christian Answers of Austin, Texas, Christian debater. My daughter, Marlena, has come out with a Christian music CD entitled, Win This Fight. It has eight songs that she has written and performed herself. Some of the song titles are, Win This Fight, Love Song to My Lord, Vessel to You, Waiting to Hear from You, Jesus Is, and Others. YouTube viewers can listen and see Marlena's music video, Jesus Is, right now, free. Just type Marlena Wessels, M-A-R-L-E-N-A-W-E-S-S-E-L-S, in the YouTube search box and click on her video on the page that comes next. If you would like more information about getting a copy of her CD, just email us at CDebater at AOL.com. That's C-D-E-B-A-T-E-R at AOL.com. Or give us a call at 512-218-8022. Thank you, and may the Lord bless you and yours.